1: Don Kelly, thanks. We're going to pick it up exactly there. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner. This make or break hour begins. The stock's trying to execute an immaculate rotation. The biggest mega cap tech winners of this year backing off today as cash hustles toward lagging groups such as banks and small caps in the kind of broadening action that so many investors have been waiting and hoping for. Modest moves higher in the big cap indexes. The Nasdaq 100 basically flat, but it's masking a bit more strength underneath the equal weighted S&P up about a half a percent today. We begin uh, with our talk of the tape. With economic growth revised higher for last quarter this morning alongside prices easing and Treasury yields breaking down toward a three-month low, are we back to pricing in a soft economic landing as the base case? Let's ask Greg Branch, Veritas Financial Group managing partner and a CNBC contributor, and Christina Hooper, Invesco's chief global market strategist. It's great to have you both here. Uh, Thanks for coming by. Greg, um, I I know you're going to have a little bit to argue with here in terms of how the market is seeing things, right? I mean, this last leg higher in stocks started with the CPI report, really, November 14th. uh, Kicked us higher. That got 10-year Treasury yields below 4.6. Now we're under 4.3. It seems as if uh, the Fed kind of done, and yet the economy holding up. What's wrong with that?
2: Well, I think for one thing, the Fed is screaming from the rafters that they're not done to us, and and so I, I, I'm going to quibble with that. Um, and I'd even point to the start of this even earlier, uh, but similar to the CPI, where the market started to extrapolate uh, a data point as a consistent linear series, and we don't have that. And so I think it started with the job report. And while 150 or 180, however you want to call it, is not August 297 or September's 227. It's also not June's 105 or July's 157. And so to extrapolate that that's a trend and that we're going to have continued further weakening in the jobs market, um, I think is a misnomer. I don't think we can do that when it's jumping around like that. So, too, the CPI. And so I think you've seen a coordinated effort from the Fed to say we're not thinking the way you market is thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think they have some other unforeseen headaches that they haven't announced to us yet. Well, let's
1: get to that a little bit, because yesterday, of course, the market really took hard in, in uh, Christopher Waller, Fed governor, essentially saying policy is in a good place. Maybe if the conditions line up, we'll be cutting rates. But we did want to hear what uh, what uh, uh, Barkin had to say today. Thomas Barkin, uh, who's not a voter but did speak today, uh, maybe a little more in tune with you, Greg.
3: There's no particular need to do anything with interest rates if inflation is coming down. But if inflation is going to flare back up, I think you want to have the option of doing more on rates.
1: So there's your you want to have the option. Maybe we'll have to if inflation doesn't cooperate. But I mean, it seems as if the market's able to look at the inputs of inflation or at least right now is getting more comfortable with the idea that it's in
2: a it's in the trend we want to see. Right. And the market is. I just don't know if the Fed is. And I think that that's setting up for a negative surprise. Look, we know that they want to see further weakening of the labor market. We know that they want to see continued disinflation. The things that they're not telling us that they've wanted to see is they wanted to see yields in and of themselves continue to rise organically and do some of the tightening for them. They wanted to see expectations remain anchored, and they're slowly becoming unanchored. We're reaching levels we haven't seen in a decade on the long run, up at 3.2 percent now, and on the short run at 4.5 percent, which is much different than the Fed's projected 2%. And lastly, when that base effect starts to become more unfavorable, as it will continue to do, we won't get as much psychological comfort from that headline number. The markets won't be able to take as much psychological comfort from that headline number.
1: Christina, where do you come down on that, on this idea that maybe the bond market is either overshooting with yields coming down this much, or does it make sense given the data we have?
0: Oh, it absolutely makes sense, given the data we've seen and, quite frankly, um, what I think the Fed plans to do. Uh, As Waller said yesterday, we don't need any kind of significant increase in unemployment. The trigger can simply be disinflation continuing. Now, I agree, Greg, that that last mile is going to be harder. But we are getting there. And I I think there's pretty significant confidence among Fed members. What we heard from Tom Barkin in that quote was, we don't want markets to get ahead of themselves. We don't want financial conditions to ease. So I'm going to throw in that spoiler to keep you all guessing. But the reality is, the Fed is done. And I think that we're going to start to see cuts beginning in the spring of 24.
1: If that's what he wanted, he didn't really get it today, right? I mean, in terms of what the bond market has done in in response to that. Yes,
0: but certainly the Fed, there's a number of different FOMC members that can be rolled out uh, over the course of days that can try to talk down markets. But I think that's simply what is being done, is being talked down.
2: You know, I'm going to use something that I was wrong about to disagree with the latter of what you said. I thought, and as you know, Mike, I was in the camp that the consumer was going to fall off a a cliff uh, very quickly, very expediently, and that didn't happen. It didn't happen for, in hindsight, identifiable reasons, but I still don't see it happening. I still see it as kind of a death by a thousand cuts over the next, call it, six to eight quarters. Now, without the consumer collapsing, I don't know how we get to a scenario where we need rate cuts. I don't know.
0: Well, let me point you to the Federal Reserve Beige Book that came out a couple of hours ago. And what we saw in there was that economic activity is slowing. Um, consumers are being more careful. Certainly, their spending has slowed. They're becoming more selective. It's certainly also the messaging we got from a lot of companies during earnings season. And uh, so, what we could see is an environment in which they are not fueling any kind of, of significant inflation. That actually that. A soft pullback is enough uh, on the part of consumers to help continue that disinflationary process. I
2: don't disagree with that, but that was the expected outcome, not a surprise. And I think we truly need a surprise to get to the point where we need rate cuts in the first quarter.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, granted, in the first quarter, who knows what the timing might be uh, in terms of rate cuts, but it seems that the market usually gets comfort in, you know, that period between when the Fed is just on hold tends to be okay. And I guess, Christina, I would ask, uh, regardless of what we think is going to happen unfolding with inflation, with Fed policy, what is the market set up for here? Because, you know, we had a situation back in July, arguably, when we again thought soft landing is in the bag, uh, positioning got pretty over-aggressive, maybe valuations got stretched, we weren't ready ready for a seasonally weak period with yields flying, Uh, and so therefore we got that correction. We've recovered from that. Where do you think we are right now with regard to market pricing?
0: We're at a point where I think we're going to see global risk appetite increase from here, Mm -hmm. as it should, because I think markets have become more uh, certain in that view that the rate hike cycle has ended. some some stocks certainly are overvalued in this environment, but there are a lot of areas of this market that I would argue are undervalued. And of course, we're only talking about the U.S. right yeah. now. If we go outside the U.S., there's some screaming buys. Uh, and I think that's what we're likely to see, this broadening of the market, which started a little bit today and is likely to continue.
1: Uh, Greg, in terms of investment tactics, uh given your view, where does it leave you? I mean, look, I mean, you seem to be saying that the economy is going to be a little more resilient than currently expected and therefore
2: the Fed might have to be higher than the market anticipates. But what does that mean for companies? Right. And so I'm, I call this position kind of the anti-Goldilocks. Things are not going to fall off a, quick, off a cliff so expediently that they need to step in and cut rates. Uh, but things, as Christina pointed out, will continue to slow. And so in that environment, I actually think that breadth will renarrow, narrow Christina and I think that we will concentrate on the places where we can get some relative earnings growth. I have no confidence that we can grow earnings 12% next year. I do have confidence that certain sectors can grow earnings 12%. And so financials are starting to look interesting. Uh, Obviously, a lot of the performance has happened in the last month. I hesitate to be ahead of a provisioning cycle, and I think we will see one. But the flattening of the curve and the obviously improved net interest margin environment uh, makes it interesting, particularly with some of the bellwethers recently trading at less than price to book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can look at things powered by secular tailwinds. Excuse me, like cybersecurity, like AI, like cloud, and and uh, and some healthcare services look interesting as well. Not just the ones with the blockbuster drugs that uh, sure. everyone seems to want, but also names like Humana and Cardinal that can pass on uh, any macro uh, headwinds that, that that they may experience in the consumer.
1: Christina, you mentioned um, non-U.S. equities possibly as being an opportunity. I mean, if we do get into a rate-cutting cycle, that typically is is one place to look. But um, otherwise, I mean, developed markets outside the U.S. look like they're going to be more challenged on the growth side as ever.
0: Well, I think we have to separate out the economy from markets. And uh, because let's face it, we're all going to be facing a slowdown in the first half of 24, in my opinion. But I think markets are going to look past that to a recovery. And Europe, uh, European stocks look very attractive. They're also um, more cyclical in nature. So if you do believe that we're going to see a recovery trade, then I think European stocks should benefit from that um, as markets start to discount an economic recovery in the back half of 24.
1: It is tricky, though, because you articulate it right there. I mean, pretty much everybody expects there's slowing in motion, right? I mean, this quarter is not going to be as strong as last quarter in the U.S. or anywhere else um, by design and because of rates, you know, just got to their highs in recent months. Uh, But yet you're expecting markets to kind of pivot quickly toward looking through that. Uh, into the next few months?
0: Yeah, it, typically what we see is markets are looking out six to 12 months. And I think very much because there's an understanding that the rate hike cycle has ended, um, that they can look through this downturn and anticipate a recovery that will be at least somewhat goosed um, by the start of rate cuts. But rate cuts are not necessary, I think, to see a recovery in the back half.
1: Um, Greg, in terms of fixed income, um I mean, you, know, you now finally have a bid in bonds. In fact, it's one of the strongest months we're on track for in bond returns for a right. while, uh, obviously coming off of two terrible years. Right. But um, where does that leave you? Because a lot of folks, I think, were, uh, were, were you maybe getting used to the idea that 5% was going to be available on the long end for a while.
2: Right. I think it'll reveal itself to be available again. Uh, I think the Fed is right to wait here. Mm -hmm. Um, I disagree with my colleague Christina, although I have uh, much admiration for her. I I do think that they won't do anything in December because they should wait. I would wait. Um, Hopefully, you know, the auctions that we have coming up, and we know, we at least know about 1.6 trillion. Sure. There's probably more than that. Hopefully organically, that will give some boost to the, the, the yield curve in and of itself. And so I think that we'll see higher yields. That keeps me focused on the short end for now, mm-hmm. uh, where I can remain somewhat liquid and I'm not tied into a, uh, a yield that does not warrant the risk that we're taking.
1: Just in case uh, we, we lacked for further things to worry about, though, we do have some comments from Jamie Dimon from this morning, and he's, he's speaking in this direction. My view
4: about the economy is I think there's a higher chance than other people that rates have to go up. There are
1: a lot of things out there which are both dangerous and inflationary. So I just say be prepared. Nobody would argue against the idea of be prepared, I guess. And, And of course, you know, Jamie Dimon likes to stake out that position of being watchful for for risk, Christina. But um Where do you think you would tilt in terms of um, if you had to worry about one big thing? Is it the economy weakening more than expected or is it a flare up of inflation that that gets the Fed back in the game?
0: I think it's the economy weakening more than expected because of those long and variable lags of monetary policy. We don't know how much damage has been done by rate hikes thus far that haven't yet shown up in the economic data. So that's what I worry about, and that's why I think it is too Pollyanna-ish to assume a soft landing. Mm -hmm. I'm in the camp of a bumpy landing. That means we avoid a recession, but there is significant damage.
1: Yeah. Um, bumpy landing, muddle through. We've been there not that long ago. We'll see. If, uh, see if it comes back. Christina, Greg, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Let's now get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Steve Kovac
5: is here with those. Hi, Steve. Hey, Mike. Yeah, Okta is lower after disclosing that hackers stole information on all users of its customer support system during the company's October cyber attack. Shares have fallen more than 17% since the cybersecurity giant first disclosed the hack last month, and that comes alongside lackluster full-year revenue guidance, both of which are overshadowing strong Q3 earnings and Q4 guidance. And turning to Okta's larger rival CrowdStrike, that stock hitting its highest level since April of 2022. The company topped analyst expectations in the prior quarter and issued fourth-quarter guidance that also beat estimates. Those shares have more than doubled in 2023, up more than 120%, and are tracking for their best day in over a year. Mike.
1: Uh, Steve, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We are just getting started here. Up next, the Magnificent Seven slipping a bit in today's session, but the group has still uh, seen gains of more than 14% over the last month. So what could be in store for the mega caps as we head into 2024? Corian's Amy Kong will reveal how she's playing the space just ahead. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Val on CNBC.
6: Did you hear that?
8: yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination yahoofinance.com that's yahoofinance.com Welcome back to Closing Bell. The Magnificent Seven
1: stocks are underperforming today, despite the S&P tech sector hitting a record high earlier in the session. And with the group already gaining nearly 100% this year, is the mega cap trade set to turn in 2024? Joining us now at Post 9 is a shareholder in a number of these big tech names, Coriant, Amy Kahn. Great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Um, So obviously, this is a small decline after a big gain in these names. And of course, on a two-year basis, a lot of them have really just round-tripped. So, We don't know where it goes from here. But I'm curious if you think that the market's reasons for uh, piling into these stocks, right, where they seemed insulated from a lot of the slowdown fears and the the, the yield moves, uh, and also from technological disruption, if any of that is changing at this point.
9: Not from what we're, what we're seeing, um, you know, you, the markets have transitioned into two scenarios this year. One is the fact that we are in a higher for longer scenario. And to that point, companies, larger cap companies rather, are outperforming smaller cap. And then second, this, uh, the second scenario is essentially the Fed is closer and closer to done. And with that point, growth is coming back. And that really kind of makes up the rationale of why investors are looking into these types of names. They fit the category in both ways.
1: It's interesting when you know so it's higher for longer was the premise for a while. And now yields are rushing lower because maybe it's not as high for as long as we thought, right?
9: <laughs> that, that's probably right. You've, you definitely have a risk-off momentum right now, and that's obviously driving uh, a little bit of the yields moving uh, mm-hmm. back down. Uh, and I think that could be the, the way to be starting off into 2024 as well. We, we are seeing that the market continues to be as resilient as it has been. Uh, labor market conditions continue to be healthy. And it's really hard to call a recession, quite frankly, unless you have labor markets turning the corner.
1: Sure. And, you know, as much- as As much as we talk about these stocks, um, the, the big seven, or maybe you want to exclude Tesla and it's six or however you define it, they are moving on their own fundamentals to a degree. I mean, as you can see, the outperformance of Nvidia and Microsoft relative to some of the others shows you that there's something long term happening here. Is there anything going on with Nvidia in particular that gives you pause that either it's pulled forward too much demand or it's become too popular as a stock?
9: Certainly, there's a lot of positive momentum there. And we are cautious going into the stock as with brand new money at this point. But we do see the longer-term megatrend there. And the fact that they have guided revenues, uh, really a double from two quarters ago, and they just reported last week, and they actually surpassed expectations once again. Again, two great quarters in a row. It does cause for, um, again, this megatrend of AI and, and such becoming a longer-term uh, thing to stay. And we're watching that very carefully.
1: As you do have, um, you know, fresh clients, money to deploy, uh, where are you more looking at this point?
9: Valuation continues to be a key discipline for us. We just don't want to be chasing performance, even if there is a longer-term trend in play. Uh, we are obviously very keen on some of these longer-term trends, so we want to be in places like the NVIDIAs of the world when the timing is right. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, to your point earlier, is another area that we have been long-term holders of and we would still be buying today. They continue to, to impress from the standpoint of pricing power, free cash flow generation, again, all the things that are checking off in this kind of environment. Sure. Uh, and they will benefit in our opinion our from AI in general as well.
1: It is fascinating. Everyone is very much seizing on, you know, the visibility of Microsoft's, you know, capacity to monetize in in AI. Um, I was noticing earlier, though, um, that it was almost a one-for-one that people were kind of paring back Microsoft. It was down one or two percent and all other software stocks were up. So some of the growthier stuff that got left behind, smaller cap, you know, maybe lower profit levels currently, uh, seems like it's catching a little bit of a bid. Uh, is that something that's interesting or is, do you think that's just a little phase that we're going through?
9: We are looking at derivatives of this AI trend. Obviously, the big seven, as you've noted, are the first places people are looking towards, but we're thinking about the second, second derivatives, if you would, companies that are supporting Microsoft, companies that are supporting NVIDIA. Uh, we are very still very mindful of uh, value valuation. Uh, and in general, you make a very interesting point that Magnificent Seven makes up about 90% of this year's uh, rally and malperformance. We are paying attention to the other 493, uh, but we're still being very selective because valuation and the idea of monetizing off of AI and some of these larger trends, it's still, you know, a thing, a, a, something we're waiting to see. It's not necessarily consistent across the board.
1: You know, we've gotten, obviously, plenty of news along that front the past couple of weeks. So the open AI drama, Uh, Microsoft seeming like they've kind of retained whatever um, exposure they have to to what OpenAI is doing, but then Amazon coming out with its own co-pilot, so to speak, everybody wanting to convey that they're participating here. Does it muddle the outlook at all, or do you think that uh, at this point we can have multiple potential winners?
9: You can absolutely have multiple potential winners, uh, and there are so many different ways of playing this AI trend. Uh, I think Microsoft, uh, as I've mentioned, continues to play it on both spectrums. They're one of the three, as we know, at cloud computing vendors. But they're also one of the few that have user-friendly features and services that use AI. Amazon, Google, I think they're all trying to get in, but certainly not as broadcasted, if you would, or not as widely um, uh, anticipated as what we've seen with Microsoft. But you are starting to see the players come in, uh, and it's just a matter of waiting out whether or not they're true to their word. Uh, I think it's right. easy to say AI in a press conference, but really, can you commercialize off of that is what we're watching for in the coming
1: And I guess where is the uh, where is the revenue going to come from? I mean, not so much are they going to be able to, 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 to grow revenue, but where are they taking it from? So I wonder if there are net losers that you uh, have identified, you know, just in general in this area that are not going to be as well positioned
9: you know the way we're seeing it is more so that they can be more more productive if you would with using ai not necessarily taking it away from other players and that's probably what's been driving um, for us at least innovation is really what's driving the game for us and that's a discipline for us is to really look for the innovators uh, in this space and using ai to innovate is one of the keyer uh, you know more uh, critical disciplines for us
1: yeah jensen wang today talking about how ai uh, if it didn't exist, they couldn't even do any of the designs of their current product line. So uh, it's, uh, it's working for them, clearly. Uh, Amy, thanks very much. Thank you, Good Mike. to see you. All right, sticking with tech, a quick programming note. Don't miss Altimeter's Brad Gerstner on the Halftime Report, 12 p.m. noon Eastern tomorrow with Scott Watner. Up next, Iger on the record, the Disney CEO taking the stage at the Dealbook Summit. We'll bring you all the biggest headlines after this break. Closing Bell, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Disney CEO Bob Iger taking the stage at the Dealbook Summit earlier this afternoon. Julia Borston here with the highlights. Hi, Julia.
10: Well, Iger talking with our Andrew Ross Sorkin about how he's trying to transform Disney, including improving mood movies so they can meet the higher bar that there is now for getting people out of the house and into theaters. He also talked about taking ESPN direct to consumer.
11: All we are doing right now as we prepared to bring it in a much more direct-to-consumer direction, which is to launch it as its own app, um, is basically looking for partners, just talking with partners that could actually enhance the prospects. We're we're very confident about the prospects of ESPN as a streaming business, but with a potential partner from the sports side, meaning more content or from the distribution and technology side, we believe our prospects will even be better as it transitions.
10: Iger also responded to a question about Nelson Peltz's activist push and how his demand for a board seat could be received.
11: There's a qualification level that is required to sit on the Disney board, and the board will make, the, the, not me, the board makes decisions about who's qualified and who isn't qualified to be on the board. And if Nelson officially requests a board seat, I'm sure the board will go through a process to determine whether he is, or whether he should have a role on the board or not. But it's not like we've got, sure, a, a number of empty seats, come on in, join the Disney board have fun. Have at it. Help us make sequels.
10: One other controversial issue came up. Elon Musk. Iger defended his decision to have Disney's brands stop advertising on X, saying the association with Musk is not necessarily a positive one. Guys.
1: Yeah, interesting, Julius. I mean, of course, in the distant past, Disney having once considered buying Twitter before Musk uh, owned it. But I, I wonder also about the. There was a bit of an exchange uh, with Andrew about the current succession process round two uh, with uh, with with Bob Iger back in that role.
10: Yeah, look, there was a little bit of a joke about how much Iger needs to do. Um, Iger spoke just in his town hall yesterday about how he's been in a fixing mode. Now he gets his shift into a building mode. And there was a little bit of a joking exchange about all of the things on Iger's to-do list. But he said repeatedly that when his his term is up, and of course, he had extended his term since he returned, that he was going to be retiring. Um, and, and Andrew pushed him a little bit, said, you have all these things to do. What if you don't finish them? Will you stay? And Iger was pretty definitive that this is this is his last round as CEO, but certainly a lot to do before then. He said that the board is taking the succession process very seriously.
1: Right. I'm quite sure that uh, if if, uh, and I'm sure it did before, too, but we'll see how how it plays out this time. Julia, thanks so much. Up next, we are counting you down to Salesforce's results. The software giant seeing serious gains this year, up nearly seventy-five percent. So, what's at stake when it reports in overtime? We'll discuss that with an analyst after this break. The S and P five hundred just dipping below the flat line as those big cap tech stocks undergo profit taking. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Shares of Salesforce up nearly 3% as the company prepares to deliver earnings after the close. Let's bring in Brent Thale of Jeffries with more on what to expect. Brent, good to see you. I mean, um, the consensus has been rising for months uh, for this quarter, for the current fiscal year for uh, for Salesforce. So clearly trends uh, moving in the right direction. Where are expectations at? What are you most going to be focused on in the numbers?
12: Yeah, there are two focus uh, items. Number one, CRPO or backlog growth at 11%. They should be able to clear it given it's the easiest bar of the year. And we believe uh, activities picking back up in tech spend. And then number two is operating margins 30%. This company uh, has way higher aspirations on margin. Their peers are high 30s into the 40s. You look at Adobe mid 40s. You look at Oracle low to mid 40s. You look at all the, the established peers, they're way ahead of Salesforce. So this is why the activists have been involved because they've been running way below cruise altitude uh, on margin. And so we think the continued focus there uh, will give uh, the shares continued lift as long as they continue to show progress on on both CRPO at 11% and 30 plus percent operating margins.
1: There's some um, expectation, I suppose, that they may uh, roll out some some more distant guidance, right? Are they going to be framing out how the next fiscal year is going to look? I guess that would incorporate whatever they think they can achieve on margins.
12: Yeah. And again, I think this is still, in our opinion, a uh, double-digit top-line story with uh, 35 40% margins long-term. And then the whole AI craze has not hit. So if you look at Microsoft and Adobe, their AI monetization's way ahead of Salesforce. We think that wave will come to them. It still hasn't yet hit in a big way, but will hit. And you look at a number of, of other businesses like Slack underperforming. We believe Slack can begin its outperformance with their new leadership. We look at other segments of consolidation of their, their clouds. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity in front of Salesforce. And again, this is really the big uh, stock run's been driven on margin. And now we have to see, again, that they can sustain that double digit top line and again, continue to commit to, to the margin upside.
1: And in terms of, you know, AI and overlaying that into their various uh, products and services, we're seeing some commentary about how their customers are, are feeling about that and what can be delivered by way of Salesforce. How specifically is that going to play out, do you think, for them?
12: I think it has a big role in 24 not this year, and it will have a, a, a meaningful impact to their business. If you think about you're using their products today, you're a service representative, the AI agent can effectively help understand what is Mike looking for? What can I provide to you uh, when you call into a call center? Do I even need to talk to a rep? Uh, when you when you have a sales engagement, you, you may be a VIP, which you are, uh, and, and uh, you effectively should get special service versus myself, I'm not a VIP. Uh, so if you think about what, what happens uh, in, in terms of AI for Salesforce overall, there's an incredible opportunity. There's so much data trapped in Salesforce and many users of Salesforce uh, effectively say that they, they spend more time feeding Salesforce the data versus Salesforce giving them the data back. Uh, we are users at Jefferies. Uh, and I think a lot of users feel that the system can unlock a lot of that information. So AI, can make this available to the end users in a a way easier way that they don't have to dig around for it. Uh, That is not necessarily the case today. That will be the case into 24, and we're very bullish that they can unlock this. But again, if you're very transparent, uh, we believe Microsoft and Adobe are way ahead of their AI capabilities. They're monetizing in a big way. We think Salesforce was lagging a bit, but has Mm -hmm. an opportunity to catch up, and that'll be a, a 24 catch up in our opinion.
1: I was just looking, I mean, just valuation-wise, like on a free cash flow yield basis, I mean, Salesforce is now a good deal cheaper than Microsoft. That didn't used to be the case. Um, Is that something that should converge? I'm sure you probably think Microsoft is well positioned too, but it is much more richly valued.
12: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Microsoft has the best product cycle of anyone in software right now. The opportunity to double prices is incredible for Microsoft. So yeah, we believe it'll converge. And to your point, Salesforce does trade at a discount on many of the valuation metrics, and we think that's why we believe the stock can continue to climb to 275 to 300 uh, based on better execution, unlocking AI into next year, mm-hmm. potential hopeful reacceleration of revenue growth. If, if AI really kicks, they should be able to price and charge more, uh, and, and theoretically could they drive even faster than low-teen uh, uh, you know, uh, backlog growth. And then from a margin perspective, they've been the most inefficient large cap software coming uh, across the board. So you know, in terms of getting better efficiency, that just keeps unlocking shareholder value. The activists aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, so we think it's still uh, a reasonable setup for for Salesforce.
1: Yeah, uh, if it gets back to 300, that's essentially a round trip to the old highs, right? So uh, two years ago. Uh, Brent Dill, thanks very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And be sure to tune into Overtime at the top of the hour. They will have Salesforce's results then. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Steve Kovac, standing by with more. Hey, Steve.
5: Yeah, so one of the original meme stocks, it's soaring today ahead of its earnings report next week. And you can't defeat, hint, hint this one retailer that smashed expectations in its earnings report this morning. We'll reveal those names when Closing Bell returns after this. About 16 minutes till the closing bell. The S&P 500
1: sitting on some modest losses. That's all about some rotation out of the mega caps as there are two stocks up for every one that is down on the day. Let's get back to Steve Kovac for a look at some
5: key stocks to watch. Steve. Yeah, GameStop is soaring today as the meme stock enjoys a resurgence this week. The stock has seen a huge uptick in trading volume and increase in on sites like, where else, Reddit. The move comes ahead of the company's third quarter earnings report a week from today on December 6th. So far this week, GameStop up roughly 30%, which would be its best week since March. And Foot Locker is having its best day since August of 2022 after smashing earnings estimates on revenue that also came above expectations. Company raised its full-year same-store sales outlook and issued earnings guidance above analyst estimates. CEO Mary Dillon said on the earnings call that customers remain discerning about discretionary spending but are willing to pay full price for new and trendy products. Shares up over 15% today, Mike.
1: Yeah, shows you how uh, beaten down expectations probably had gotten with Foot Locker. Steve, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Up next, banks outperforming on the day. We've got a top analyst standing by to break down all the action in the financials and what it might mean for the sector as we head toward 2024. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. Bell market zone. Peter Cecchini of Axonic is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, General Motors shares soaring after announcing buyback plans. Bill LeBeau has those details and Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital digs into the rally today in bank stocks. Welcome to you all. Uh, Peter, uh, market uh, in the last few weeks is getting pretty comfortable with this idea that we've seen peak yields. The Fed might be getting out of the way. The economy so far hasn't buckled uh, earnings back on the upturn. And I don't know, risk risk back on. How do you see the setup?
7: You know, I, I see the setup as, as very bearish positioning at the end of October um, that that was amongst uh, professional investors, CTAs. You know, we ended ended the month of October with fewer than 20 percent of, of uh, S&P stocks above their 50 day moving average um, and lots of under, other indicators um, suggesting that, you know, people were just a bit too bearish. Um And that usually coils the spring for a rally. Um, we've gotten that uh, fueled by sort of the emer- reemergence of a Goldilocks narrative. Um, and you know what happens oftentimes is when stocks rally, that feeds on justifications for that rally or or people create narratives, they craft narratives to fit the rally and i really think that that's what's happened here i don't think much has changed um, i think the long and variable lags of monetary policy are going to kick in certainly take long taken longer than i thought they would but i don't think the narrative for next year has changed uh, at all in our view
1: i mean there's certainly narratives always do hold sway and they do change and they follow price and all the rest of it but that what you say suggests two things one is that that excess of bearish positioning going into the October low may have been an overshoot on its own, and therefore the S&P never belonged near 4,100 this time around. But also, beyond narrative, the 10-year yield going from 5% below to below 4.3 seems to take some of the pressure off the market and the economy as well, no?
7: No, I agree with that. There's definitely a feedback mechanism, a reflexivity between 10-year yields and equity markets. I agree with you. That's part of the relief that said where i think the narrative has gone uh, a little bit awry is the reason why yields have come in fed funds futures are also now implying about 1.2 percent uh cuts uh for next year and it's our view that that those cuts are coming from expectations for a slowdown not a soft landing And so, you know, you've got this circularity here to the reasoning that's beginning to embed itself. But, you know, the Fed history tells us that the Fed has rarely, if ever, orchestrated a soft landing. And I'm just not certain what's changed this time. Um, Yes, yields are leading equities. Clearly, that's helped to support equity risk here. Um, But we just don't think that's sustainable, given the trajectory of fundamentals that we're seeing, especially a lot of the high frequency data.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, even a slowdown is compatible with the idea that ultimately, you know, you get a softish landing, I suppose. It's a matter of whether uh, it really gets worse from there. Um, but, you know, the credit markets seem not to be sniffing any of this out. Does that give you any comfort?
7: Well, you know, when you look at high yield spreads, I agree with you. They've, they've, they've done nothing but but sort of tighten. But there are markets that are sniffing it out. You know, when we look in uh, certain structured credit markets in, in particular where we happen to, to traffic, you know, we think that, uh, you know, a slowdown is being priced in and see pretty good risk adjusted returns uh, there. Um, And, you know, when Mike, when we look at relative value from bonds to equities, for example, you know, we just we just don't see it when we see an S&P dividend yield of about one and a half percent versus, you know, real 10 year yields um, well above two. it, It just doesn't square. And forward equity returns have been very, very low every single time you've had that sort of dislocation.
1: Yeah. uh, Fair enough. Uh, The intermarket stuff is not necessarily a pure green light. Peter, good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Phil, uh, GM uh, responding to this uh, accelerated buyback announcement up 9%. What are the details?
3: Well, when you get a buyback where you're going to take 17 percent of the shares and immediately take them off the market, uh, you're going to get the stock bouncing higher. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. The other piece of news with General Motors today is the company's outlook. They issued new guidance for 2023. Remember, they pulled that back during the UAW strike. The guidance isn't dramatically different from what we saw uh, back before the end of the UAW strike, but a little bit of a trim here and there. And then the other thing that we heard from them is that they will be investing less when it comes to their autonomous vehicle subsidiary, Cruz. And we've, we've talked at some length about the problems with Cruz uh, that they've had with their vehicles out in San Francisco. For the time being, those are suspended. And finally, Mary Barr this morning on Squawk on the Street said, look, we have got to improve our execution. Here's Mary talking with us.
10: There was a lot of challenges this year uh, with labor negotiations, et cetera. Those are behind us now. And that's what gives us confidence in the business, confidence to do the ASR at a $10 billion level. And, you know, we're going to move forward and execute and, uh, again, move past these, I'll say, bumps in the road on, in the areas of, of autonomous and electrification.
3: That ASR she's talking about, that stands for Accelerated Stock Repurchase Program. $10 billion of that $6.7 billion will go into immediately retiring uh, GM shares, about $6.7 billion worth of shares. And again, that takes 17% of the float off the street almost immediately. Also, take a look at shares of Ford, the reason we're showing this to you. Tomorrow, there is a Barclays Analyst Conference. We will hear from Ford at that conference. Don't be surprised if we hear the company, like General Motors, giving us an update on their outlook, whether it's for 23 or for 24. But certainly, there's going to be some questions about the outlook, and we'll hear from Ford at that analyst conference.
1: Mike? You know, Phil, um, one way uh, to interpret the decision to do this accelerated share buyback is, look, they're telling the market, look, you're pricing us at four times earnings as it is. You know, you're, you're valuing GM as if there's not much of a growth future if any, at all. So yep. we'll just give you the capital back. Whoever wants to take the money and go can go. And we got to prove it to the rest of those investors that there actually is a next act in terms of growth.
3: And that's the big question. What is the next act? Look, if you strictly, if you were General Motors and you did not put all of this money, the billions of dollars that you've allocated into autonomous or into EVs, You could make the argument, Mike, they're killing it when it comes to internal combustion engine vehicles and that they would have even more cash that they're spitting out. You and I both know the future of autos is in electrification, and they're going to have to make that transition. The question is, can they get past the challenges that they've encountered so far and really kick it into gear in 24 and 25?
1: Yeah, and actually uh, have a, a transparency towards some returns in that business. Phil, thanks very much. Sure. Appreciate it. Gerard Cassidy, uh, banks up 2 percent today, uh, up like 14 percent on a month-to-day basis. Is it all about just the bond market rallying and, and taking some of the balance sheet pressure off
4: mike i I think it's some of that no no doubt about it um certainly at the beginning of the year of course many of the uh, investors were very concerned about the unrealized bond losses and to your point they reached uh, levels that were very high at the end of the third quarter and now the 10 years come in quite dramatically since the start of the, the fourth quarter but more importantly mike it's all about credit Credit yeah. trumps interest rates, in our opinion. And if we have some sort of slowdown, which it seems likely next year, but it's not a hard landing, it's not a recession of the 1990 uh, level or the 08, 09, the banks are gonna do very well. The banks are well positioned today for the Fed to stop raising rates. And if we get a soft landing combined with the Fed being finished, we're looking at it, a period where the stocks are greatly under-owned by the long owning community, and you're going to see some really meaningful performance, in, in our view, in that environment.
1: Yeah, I, I have to see uh, even Goldman Sachs hedge fund positioning data also showing uh, hedge funds have rock-bottom exposure to financials. But on the credit point, you've, you've seen everybody kind of getting a little bit alarmed about the upturn in consumer delinquencies, no matter whether you're talking about straight consumer loans or, or credit cards and right now it just looks like normalization right you're just going back to the delinquency rates of pre-pandemic normal times but it's hard to know if it's going to stop there
4: you, you put your thumb on it mike i mean it, the normalization trends are underway we've been talking about them all year And it really comes down to, does normalization lead to deterioration? And then that is equated to, of course, the employment picture. And if the unemployment rate, you know, if somebody's of the viewpoint that next year's unemployment rate could reach six or 7%, then you're going to see far worse credit losses in the consumer. However, if the unemployment rate tops out at 4.5%, we still have all these uh, labor shortages that we're experiencing today then it may not be that bad. The other thing too is that remember the banks have already reserved for many of these losses under this new accounting that came into effect in January of 2020 called CECL current expected credit losses. So they, they are prepared for this. And I think if, if the um, economy is a soft landing or a mild recession, and if it's a mild recession, think about this for a minute, Mike, the Fed's going to start aggressively cutting their short end of the curve to yeah. ensure in a year, a presidential election year, that we don't have a real bad recession.
1: Yeah, but well, most likely uh, that would probably happen. Now, just in terms of within the group quickly, you know, what stocks look like they're they're ripe to benefit from that type of environment most of all?
2: Yep, yeah, it's,
4: it's the risk on name. So this year, JP Morgan's been the champ. It's been the best stock. It's the risk off stock. The long onlys are underweight the banks, but they do own JP Morgan. So we want to go risk on. Bank America certainly is a name to people should consider. On the regional front, you're looking at Fifth Third Key Corp uh, as names to own. U.S. Bank or PNC are other names that people can own. So we would steer people to more risk on names in the uh, scenario where the Fed is finished raising rates, and the slowdown in the economy is not a hard landing, then those stocks are going to do very well.
1: Gerard, great to catch up with you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, about 30 seconds till the close. The S and P 500 is now sitting on a slight decline of about one eighth of one percent. However, two stocks up on the New York Stock Exchange. For everyone that is lower, 10-year Treasury yield down under 4.3 percent. The equal-weighted S and P up about one third of one percent. It is just a Power for taking in some of those mega cap tech, tech names, Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet, the big winners of the year that is weighing down the SP. That's gonna do it for closing bell. We'll finish overtime with Morgan Brennan and John Ford.
6: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, don't give it to you How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience.
7: Acura. And
6: that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go give it to ya. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.